We're going to be in Acts chapter 14 this morning as we continue in our study of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 14. Some of you probably know that over the last 10 years or so, it's become increasingly common for people to meet a significant other, maybe even a spouse, online. Uh, Online dating, the popularity of it has exploded. Uh, Certainly when my wife and I were dating, it was hardly a thing, but in the intervening 15 years, it's become much more common. And so I'm guessing that many of you in this room either met somebody online or you know somebody who met somebody online. But it's interesting when you read about online dating, one of the things that you find that may or may not surprise you is that people lie sometimes in their online profiles. Now, people lie in real life, of course. It's just that it's much easier to quantify when it's online. Uh, So I was curious, what are the things people lie about the most? And uh, there's research on that. It might surprise you. The number one thing that people lie about in their online dating profile is how tall they are, their height. Second is their weight. Third is their uh, body type, their physique. Uh, And then after that, age, income, hobbies, and interests. Uh, I found it really interesting that the things people lie about most readily are the things that can be most easily verified on the first date, right? So if I show up and I've written down that, you know, I'm six foot two, 190, and I've got the body of a a professional football player, you're going to walk in immediately and go, liar, right? (laughs) You're going to know it. So why do people do it? Why is it that people feel compelled to uh, make themselves appear better on paper than perhaps they look in real life or inflate their income or reduce their age? Well, it's really simple. It's the same reason that all of us lie from time to time, even in real life. And it is this. If I can make myself look better, if I can shade or modify the truth appropriately, then you'll like me more. You might want to spend more time with me. You might approve of me to a greater degree. That is true not just in the realm of dating or online dating. That's true of all of us in many different arenas of life. It is very easy to convince ourselves that if we just change the truth a little bit, we will be more acceptable to the people around us, more attractive to the people we meet. That's a danger particularly for those of us who are called by God to engage in the mission of sharing the gospel. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the reality is that your life is set apart for the task of proclaiming the good news, that Jesus died and rose again to bring life to all who believe in him. That's the great commission. If you are a believer in Jesus in here this morning, that is what God has called you to. But the danger we face is that because we live in a pluralistic society, in a world that does not always agree with us about what is true and what is false, we are tempted to modify or shade the truth or make it just a little bit more appealing because we fear the negative repercussions of speaking the truth. And so if we are not careful, one of the dangers we face is we become much like politicians, right? We are much more concerned with what others think than with what is true. And that's a big danger that we face. As we read the book of Acts, 
one of the things that ought to strike us is the reality that they lived in a society that was every bit as pluralistic as the one we live in. There were Jews who followed the Old Testament. There were Romans and Greeks who followed this pantheon of gods. There was emperor worship. There were all sorts of different ways that people felt they could approach deity or God or have eternal life. And so when the gospel came along, it's interesting, the very exclusivity of the message of the gospel is what drove people to feel hostile toward it. See, it wasn't simply that early Christians were persecuted because they believed in Jesus. It actually was that they were persecuted because they believed Jesus was the only way. And very similar to our own society. Right? The reality is that it is often very acceptable to speak of spiritual topics or to talk about God in general or even to talk about Jesus as long as we reserve our message about Jesus to those aspects of Jesus' character that make people feel comfortable But when we begin to say this, that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only way to know God and have eternal life, and apart from him, all of us, because of sin, are destined for hell, that's a very unpopular message. What I love about the life of the Apostle Paul, as we look at Acts chapter 12, 13, 14, and throughout the book, what we see with Paul is he does not shade or modify the truth to impress people. Now, the reality is that at times he will modify the way that he speaks the truth. He may use different illustrations. He may start into the message from a different point, depending on whether he's talking to Greeks or Jews, but he does not change the fundamental essence of the message. And Paul knows how to stay right on task because he understands what God has called him to. He understands who he is in Jesus Christ, and he understands that his mission, first and foremost, is not about himself, but about the good news. And that's what we'll see in Acts chapter 14. And there's a few exhortations that I think the life of Paul and the mission of Paul will provide to us to answer that question, how can we stay on task? How can you and I avoid the temptation to shade the truth, to modify the truth, to stop speaking the truth, to quit the Great Commission because we're afraid of how others might respond. Because the reality is for all of us, as we proclaim the gospel, sometimes we will receive positive response and many times we'll receive negative response. So how does Paul deal with that issue of this variety of responses. And what does that say to us as we pursue the mission that Jesus Christ has for us? So Acts chapter 14, I'm going to start in verse 1. In Iconium, they, that is Paul and Barnabas, entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. 
And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the gospel. All right, the first exhortation we see from the life of Paul and from his missionary journey is simply this. Stay faithful to the gospel. Stay faithful to the message itself that God has given. Let me set a little bit of the background for where we are in the flow of the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas are on a missionary journey. This is Paul's first missionary journey after his conversion. They were sent out by the church at Antioch to go throughout the region of Asia Minor and share the gospel and build churches and proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus to Jews and Gentiles. So here's just, uh, um, actually I had a map, but it is not in there. But if you look at a map of the uh, missionary journey itself, what you'll see is they go throughout Uh, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and they plant churches. In chapter 13, you see them in Pisidian Antioch, which is toward the west side of Turkey, and that's chapter 13. The message that Paul preached and the message that Barnabas preached was Jesus has died, Jesus rose again, and everybody who believes in him can have forgiveness of sin. So when you look at chapter 13, 38 to 39, he says that's the message, that through him, forgiveness of sins comes. Now, in Pisidian Antioch, they experience what they do in Iconium and Lystra and Derby, which is some people believe a small minority believe what they're saying, but there are also a whole lot of people that don't like what they're saying to the extent that they actually want to kill them. And so they begin to conspire together to kill them. You see that in Iconium. Some people trust in Christ. Others say, we're going to kill Paul and Barnabas. In fact, to the extent that here in Iconium, they flee and they go to Lystra and Derby. But what strikes me about Paul is he never changes the essence of his message. It would have been very easy for him to simply say, you know what, all of that stuff about Jesus being the only way, uh, that, that part, you can take it or leave it, right? If you want to worship Jesus and the emperor, all right, that's okay, we'll accept that. Right? It would have been very easy for him to try to shade or modify the character of God himself and to say, you know what, there is no judgment for those who do not trust in Jesus that, you know, everybody really is going to end up in the same place in the end. All roads lead up the same mountain. It would have been easy because it would have avoided the persecution and the hostility toward the gospel of Jesus. But Paul recognizes that his primary task is actually to proclaim that there is only one way and that is through Jesus Christ, just as you and I have been called to do because every day you and I walk into situations where there are men and women that apart from knowing Jesus Christ are destined for an eternity separated from God. And so when you and I go to work, when we go back into our neighborhoods, when we engage with family members, the task we've been called to is to stay faithful, to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. I think often we are overly concerned, I know I am, with how people respond to the things we say. But the reality is that on any topic, there will be some who agree with you and some who disagree, small topics and large topics. Those of you who are on social media know that you can start an argument about anything if you want to. Uh, This past week, I posted something on my own Facebook wall about how I like candy corn, right? I like candy corn. How many people in this room like candy corn? 
Okay, how many people think candy corn is the worst candy ever? Okay, we, we got about 50-50, and that's what happened on Facebook. There were people that were like, I love candy corn, it's the best. And then there were other people that, the one guy literally said, all candy corn should be banned and the recipes burned. That was how much he hated it. Right, just from a silly statement about candy corn, you can divide the world into halves. Now, that's a deliberately silly example, and here's why. Because on any topic, the nature of people is that I have my opinion, you have your opinion, and if it comes to it, I will fight for my opinion. That is particularly true when it comes to the gospel. And here's why. Because the gospel message is the power of God. The name of Jesus contains the power of God because he is the Son of God who rose from the dead. And so his name evokes these strong responses in either direction, ultimately Nobody is neutral about the name of Jesus. And so when I preach the name of Jesus as the only way to know God, you're going to receive strong responses, just as Paul did. Some will believe and some will hate it. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block to Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It says Jews stumbled over the gospel, and the reason they stumbled over the gospel was because it undercut their belief that they could approach God through the law, working their way to know God through the Old Testament law. And Greeks, it seemed like foolishness because they had to acknowledge in this pluralistic, sort of sophisticated society that a man had risen from the dead. And that was the stumbling block often for the Gentiles of their day because they had to believe something that their culture felt was naive or silly. And the reality is that the same conditions are basically true today. The gospel will always challenge our sense of control and pride and ability to know God on our own. It will all Always challenge our sense of sophistication and importance and prestige so that when you and I proclaim the message of Jesus Christ who died and rose again for eternal life, some people will respond strongly and say, I do not want to let go of control of my life. I do not want to appear foolish in the face of my world. And so they reject it. But then he says, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul knew and believed that the message of Jesus Christ was true. So he did not shy away from proclaiming it. What if you and I were less afraid of the rejection that we might experience by speaking the truth and more concerned to speak the truth without changing it, shading it, modifying it? That's extremely difficult to do in a pluralistic society. It's extremely difficult to do because the gospel will evoke strong responses. And yet Paul stays faithful to the message of the gospel. Now, how is he able to do that without worrying too much about the responses around him? I think that is found in the the next part of chapter 14. So look with me at verses 8 through 20. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze on him and and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. 
When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, men, Why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways and yet he did not leave himself without witness and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. Okay, the next exhortation we see from the life of Paul then that keeps us focused on our task is this, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Now, uh, this is an interesting little story in 8 through 20 in, in that Paul very easily could have accepted the praise from those men and women at Lystra. In fact, two chapters previous to this, the same thing happened to, to King Herod. Herod is speaking and people stand up and they go, the voice of a God and not a man. And Herod goes, keep it coming, keep it coming. I love this. And then God strikes him dead, and he's eaten by worms. Now, whether Paul knows about that or not, we're not certain, but we know that it would not have been uncommon for a speaker who is particularly gifted, especially if he is evidencing these supernatural signs, for the, for the congregation to go, this is a God. And so they go get the priest of Zeus, and he's got oxen and garlands, and he's coming and he's saying, we're going to sacrifice to Barnabas and Paul. And what I love about this passage is that Paul and Barnabas both stop them, and they say, no, that is not who we are. Neither the praise nor the scorn of those around them changes fundamentally who they see themselves to be. You see that sort of self-awareness in many of the letters of Paul. He neither thinks too highly of himself nor too lowly of himself. He refuses to say, I am better than others. I am a God. Instead, he roots his identity in Jesus Christ and in who Jesus says that he is, that he is a sinner. He'll say, I am the foremost of sinners, but that he is redeemed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And yet, he also roots who he is in the mission God has called him to do, that he says, I am a chosen instrument to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's primary task is not to convince other people that he is something significant, special, important, acceptable, but instead to look men and women in the eye and say, I have a message that you need to hear. Because Paul's understanding of who he was was shaped by who God said that he was. So what they named him to be, he did not have to accept. But only who God said that he was. Uh, All of us in this room, as children, maybe as adults, have played the game Duck, Duck, Goose. Uh, If you've not played, just a recap, or if you haven't played in a while... 
Children sit in a circle. One kid is it, right? And he walks around and he tags people on the head, duck, 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 until he gets to one kid and he goes, goose. And as he tags goose, the goose stands up and chases it around the circle. And there's variations on the game. But if he tags it, often the person who's it has to go sit in the mush pot and you're the new it if you tag him until you pick a new goose, right? Now, let me ask you this question. When you play that game and someone walks around and they tag you on the head and they say, goose, does that send you into an existential crisis? Do you stand up and pull it aside and say, why'd you call me a goose? Right. Do I have feathers? What's wrong? Do I have a beak? What, why am I the goose? Do you not like me? Do you like me especially? Right? You don't really think about it, do you? It's just a game. You know you're not really a goose or a duck or it. Why? Because none of this is real. Okay? It's a game. You have a name that is going to not change once you stand up and stop playing that game. A name that was given to you by your parents when you were born that probably isn't goose or duck, right? Paul recognizes that no matter what people call him, say about him, how they react to him, whatever names people give him, those names do not trump who God says that he is or the mission God has placed on his life. And so I love the way that Paul and Barnabas both are simply able to stand up and they go, hey, 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 stop what you're doing. We're just people. We came here to proclaim to you the good news about somebody who is truly God in the flesh. And so by placing their own importance in perspective, they don't have to worry about how people label them. And they can stay focused on their mission. So again, as you walk through the letters of Paul, you'll see hints of this concept come through. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, he says, For the grace, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Don't think too highly of yourself. Think about yourself with sound judgment in light of who God is. Another one, 1 Peter chapter 2, in the writings of Peter. But you are, here's what you are. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, who you are is determined by who God says you are, and your mission remains the same. Proclaim the excellent name of Jesus Christ. What if we were able to walk through our lives with that appropriate understanding of our place in the grand scheme of eternity? With an appropriate understanding of the immense value that God has placed on our lives because we're made in the image of God, because we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, set apart for God's purposes. But we are not God. So that we recognize that our task in every moment is to point people back to Jesus. And regardless of how others respond to us, our task remains the same. I think that would revolutionize our relationships with our coworkers, with our neighbors, with our family, with our friends who don't yet know Jesus. And certainly some would turn away, not because of us, but because of the name of Jesus, but others would be drawn to the reality of the good news. 
What I see in the life of Paul and here with Barnabas is they're simply not afraid because they truly believe that the gospel contains the power of God and it has defined who they are and what they're called to do. So that in the final analysis, as he remembers the message of Jesus Christ, as he remembers who he is, that enables him then to do what we are called to do, which is to stay on mission. To stay on mission and not get sidetracked from what we have been asked to do in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 21 to 25. After they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished." What I notice here in this last part of chapter 14 is this. This is, in my opinion, the most striking part of this whole narrative. After they've received praise and scorn for the gospel, all of these things happen to Paul and Barnabas to the point that literally some Jews come over and they stone him to the point that they believe he's dead. They drag him out of the city and they just drop him there and his friends are standing around going, this is not good. And as they stand there, Paul wakes up And he wakes up and he looks at him and goes, we're going back in to that city again. That's astounding to me. As soon as he wakes up, his first thought is, I'm on a mission. So he goes back in to that city and to all of the cities where he had been preaching the gospel. And he stays in those cities for a while and he teaches men and women about Jesus, and he strengthens them in the faith, and he builds churches in those regions, churches that remain for decades after Paul has died. He perseveres because he truly believes in the mission that God has given him. As Americans, I think we love stories of perseverance. Most of our most popular stories in movies, actually, are stories of perseverance. The number one movie right now at the box office, some of you have probably seen, is The Martian. Right? What is The Martian about? It is about a man who is stranded on Mars, and he has to survive and persevere and not give up in the task he sets his mind to at the beginning, which is survive and get home. One of the classic tales of perseverance in the 20th century was Rocky first Rocky movie. And there's a key moment in the story of Rocky, right, where he's talking to Adrian and he says, you know, I, I, I can't beat him. Who am I kidding? I can't, I can't beat Apollo Creed. He's the champion. He goes, what do I want to do? I just want to go the distance, right? When that bell rings and I'm still standing, then I'll know for the first time in my life I'm not just another, what, <laughs> chum from the neighborhood, right? That is his mission. I just want to stand up. I just want to take the beating, And at the end of the beating, I want to be standing and know who I am and know I'm not just another chump. And that's why he perseveres, to prove something about himself. What you see in the life of Paul 
is this unbelievable perseverance to the point that he will list out in 2 Corinthians all of the trials and sufferings that he has endured for the sake of the gospel. Shipwreck and imprisonment and beatings and all of these lashings and hunger and cold and fear and worry and all of these things. And he's going to say, I do those things because God has called me to a task to proclaim the good news that is an eternal good news that anybody who believes in Jesus can have eternal life. And because he believes that the payoff is worth it. He endures all those sufferings. And the payoff for him is not prestige for himself, but it is seeing men and women go from darkness into light. And it is ultimately for him hearing from his Savior, well done, because he roots his understanding of who he is in Jesus Christ. Right? So then in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he can say, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. The reality within which he lives is that the gospel is the living message that Jesus is alive, and that only through him is there eternal life. And so he's willing to endure not only scorn, but persecution and hostility and even death because he believes in the overarching power of God contained in the gospel and that God knows what he's doing. And so nothing can change Paul's understanding of himself, of his mission, or of Jesus Christ. Again, I ask, what if you and I lived within that reality? Do we trust that the only way for men and women to have life is by believing in Jesus. So that as we move throughout our spheres of influence, are we gripped by the reality of the gospel and convicted to stay on mission, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light? Do we recognize that the grace of God in our lives ought to compel us to extend that grace to the world around us. That's at the heart of why Paul perseveres in his mission. And I personally find it deeply challenging and convicting with as much as I find myself ruminating over what others may think about what I say, about what I do, about who I am. And Paul is able to say there's only one opinion that ultimately matters. And yes, I can shape the way I say the message or the methodology I use, but he will not change the core of his message. He will not shade, modify, or pull back from the truth because he's on mission. And so the gospel calls us to stay faithful to that message, remember who we are, and stay on mission. In just a few moments, we're going to partake of communion here this morning. And as we think about even communion and what it communicates to us as a body of believers. It is a reminder of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a reminder of the message that we carry when we go out from these doors, that there is life found in him because he gave his life on our behalf.
It may be that you're here this morning and you have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And what we see in Acts chapter 14, what we see in the book of Acts, I think is, is the reality of the gospel itself. As we talked about a few weeks ago, the life of Paul, in my view, is one of the strongest arguments for the reality of the resurrection of Jesus because he went from being one who hated Jesus to one who invested his life proclaiming that message. If you're here this morning and you have yet not yet trusted in Jesus for eternal life, the message is simply that there is only one way to know God. There is only one way to have eternal life, and it is through believing that he died for our sins and rose again. As we celebrate communion, for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, it's an opportunity for us to reflect on all that God has done and then to move out from here and engage in the mission he's called us to, to actually talk with neighbors, co-workers, family members, and friends who may not yet know Jesus because we carry the good news. So the men are going to begin to come forward. Uh, allow me to pray for us as we begin, and then they'll come forward and hand out the elements. Father, we're grateful for your word, and we pray that as we celebrate communion, you would turn our hearts and minds toward the reality of the gospel and who you are. And we pray that we would not forget what you've called us to in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we praise you that you gave your son Jesus. And this morning we do proclaim his death on our behalf and we celebrate his resurrection so we can have life. Pray as we close in worship, you would empower our hearts and minds and bodies to go out from here and to stay on task with what you've called us to do, to reflect with our lives and proclaim with our lips the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into light. And we thank you for your mercy and grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.